You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. From Wyoming Public Media, this is the Modern West, stories to match our scenery. I'm Melody Edwards. When you walk into your house and turn on your lights, odds are coal is helping make that happen. You may not realize it, but the lion's share of coal is supplied by massive surface mines in the American West. For decades, coal was by far the largest generator of electricity in the U.S., but it's steadily fallen from popularity and is now staring at a dire forecast. In parts of America, that's cause for celebration, but in Wyoming, the trend threatens a community that people love, where careers in coal have led to a better life, a place that's known as the coal capital of the U.S., Gillette, Wyoming. That political divide has made this city a lightning rod of controversy, becoming a place cast with assumptions and stereotypes of its community and of the people who live there. Where we were once highly respected, we're now seen as undereducated, overpaid. Uh, it's, that has been the hardest part for me. You kind of get, when you get out of Wyoming, you don't really want to say what you do. Cooper McKim had some of those assumptions when he first hired on as an energy reporter in Wyoming. But after he'd been here a while, that all started to change. So he decided to bring us a story that explores what outsiders might be missing about the inner world of coal country. On a bitter, cold winter evening two years ago, I drove into Gillette for the first time. As the new energy reporter, it felt like driving into Mecca, coal capital of the U.S. Growing up in the Northeast, the town immediately felt foreign to me. For one, everything was just bigger. The town was sprawling. Nearly every vehicle was a truck, every road a highway. Trains stacked with coal snaked into the horizon. Other than maybe Newark, New Jersey, I'm not sure I'd been to a real working town. And when I came here, I wasn't sure what to expect. People that probably knew a lot about trucks probably hadn't met a Jewish guy before, and really loved coal. Maybe full of people convinced this resource was not in decline. 
two years later, I've spent a lot of time writing about this industry. And I realized the whole time I was missing something. I pull up to a house with a metallic Airstream parked in the driveway. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Beautiful Airstream. Thanks, I love it. It's so cool looking. Yeah. Stacy Moeller opens the door to her trendy looking trailer, smiling and wearing a floral shirt with tattoos on both arms, one of a girl holding a blowing dandelion. Stacy looks relaxed, like she just got back from vacation. The inside of the Airstream feels straight out of a magazine, with blue tile walls, a red antique table, and an embroidered hoop reading, I've got adventure in my soul. Stacy has spent more than 30 years of her life working in mines around Gillette. So when did you retire? In February of this year. So what was the decision going into it? How long had you been thinking about it? I'd been thinking about it for the last five years, making a plan, deciding when I could. I wanted to wait till my son graduated from college, which he just did this spring. So, I asked what letter to call, because off the bat, Stacy doesn't fit the stereotype of a coal miner, say, a young guy from out of town with a baseball cap. We sit next to the open door as a breeze blows in, and she begins to tell me her story. I was probably 25, 23. I, I don't even remember. I took a couple years off when my daughter was born and was out of mining for a couple years and then went back. And then as a single parent, it's hard to walk away from that paycheck, so. So I stayed and then uh, about six and a half years later I had my son and, and that's, it, it just became my career and I was blessed by it. You know, as a single parent, I didn't have to have child support and, you know, my kids always had a home and the things they needed. And, uh, it, was, it was a good career for me. I never, I didn't finish college. So it, it, was, a, it was really a good career for me. Stacy worked as a shovel operator, a sort of massive tractor, so big she needs two flights of stairs to get into the cab. The problem for me as an energy reporter not living in coal country is that I miss details like that. I also miss details about the nuances of this job, common knowledge about what makes people join and stick with this career. From an outside perspective, it might seem like it's just the money, but I figured there's more to it. It was an amazing experience to be a coal miner the years that I was when I you know, there's still very, very few women in mining, but I was able to do it for uh, so many years and, and thrived and, and was blessed by every bit of it. Uh, you really become more than friends and coworkers with the people that you spend that time with. So it's a family feeling. You don't necessarily love everyone, but you respect them. It's a, it's a dangerous, demanding job, and it's uh, got a rough schedule. You know, we, you miss a lot of things. I missed a lot of my kids' things because I worked nights or I worked uh, weekends. Stacy grew up in a town an hour east, Sundance. I figured she stayed in Gillette because of the job and her kids' school. But she says she grew to love Gillette, 
a place full of people from all over the country forming this random, close-knit community. I really think this is a strong community that, that loves the people here. Every community has problems, but when uh, your back's against the wall, it's good to live here. It's, it, and I hope that's what people feel when they come here is, is that this is, we care about the community. You know, we've done so much to make this a beautiful community and, and the improvements here. And so there's something really special about Gillette. Community, the number one thing I hear that people love about Gillette. But this actually helped me understand why. It's not because the companies are so great in creating this Google-style luxury work experience. There's a bonding that happens when you spend so much time with people doing really hard work. I have, don't have as much faith in the coal companies. You kind of feel like they're maybe on a different planet. You know, I, we are felt a little bit isolated here and we're the literally the boots on the ground and doing the work and sometimes we felt a, quite a disconnect so I did become a little more cynical of the companies. Recently that disconnect has felt even more stark. When I initially moved to Wyoming I assumed that the loyalty coal miners felt was met in kind by companies but through reporting on recent bankruptcies I hear from so many miners who talk about benefits that were promised and cut when the company went insolvent. Or one recently that delivered checks that couldn't be cashed. Stacy got out of the industry during arguably the lowest point in modern coal history, with five companies filing for reorganization around here in just the past few years. I wondered what it felt like to see things sort of fall apart, from someone who spent their life working in this industry. You know, it's been hard to watch this because it doesn't matter how well we mine coal or how safely or efficiently. If we don't have a market, that's where it stops. And the market is shrinking. So I worry for my young friends that are in mining now and, and hoping to make a career out of it. I don't think coal is going to go away, but I don't think we've seen the end of the decline. And I don't think we've seen rock bottom of the public perspective of coal miners. I still think there's people that that uh, I think it's going to get worse before it uh, completely bottoms out on that. That resonated with me because I've definitely noticed that public animosity. I can't count how many times people reply to one of my stories about Gillette or a bankruptcy with learn to code or simply, coal is dead. As Stacy said, it's not her fault the industry is in decline. The attitude in the last 10 years, the public perspective has really changed. Where we were once highly respected, we're now seen as undereducated, overpaid. Uh, it's, that has been the hardest part for me. You kind of get, when you get out of Wyoming, you don't really want to say what you do. That, you know, there's a lot of people that raise their eyebrows at, at people here doing an honest job and, and doing something that we felt, I have always felt, and the people that I worked with felt like was a pretty honorable job. <laughs> I love it. Uh, yeah. 
well, I'm so glad you got to see it. I love to show it off. Yeah, well, let's... Where, where do you Driving away, I realized that Stacy really opened up to me, especially about the coal market shrinking. A lot of people don't buy it. So I appreciate her openness, but wonder if that's the only time I'll hear it all day. Long drive, ain't it? It's an interesting one. It's pretty. I pull up to a long driveway with ranch land behind it, and someone who I've never met is parked at the end waiting for me. His name is Bill Fortner. You know, uh, the only the only guys that's making any money out of thermal coal is the railroad. Yeah. That's who that's who's got. And before I was buckled in, we were on the road, though I'm not sure where. Bill just jumps in. I mean, I kept telling everybody, man. Save your pennies, save your dimes, save, 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 because this thing's going to crash. The city of Gillette in the county, Campbell County, the biggest denial in, in the country. Uh, even, even in the last downturn, was it in 1516, uh, their, their philosophy was, was, well, it was a perfect storm. That was the biggest bunch of BS in the country. There was no perfect storm about it. This thing's been headed this way for 10 years. Like Stacy, I appreciate how open Bill is. It's something I've noticed about nearly everyone I've met in Gillette. A hey, let's talk kind of mentality. Bill has a lot more to say on this, but I stop him because I want to know who the heck he is. I worked in the energy industry all my life since I started working. I started back here, up over here on Buckskin Drive for a company called JNR Earth Movers back when I was about 14 years old. I learned Bill spent 20 years in coal. He's a staunch and active Republican, well-known in the community. His granddad raised him and his three brothers on a ranch, and he's a fifth-generation Gillette resident. In the early 1900s, Bill's ancestors moved here from Missouri. When they left out there, they really didn't know what they was getting out here until they got here, you know. They came, they came on wagon, horse and wagon. Bill and I get to talking about what the coal industry used to be like and what it's like now. What perspectives and nuances I'm missing as a person who doesn't live here. Bill says he can't do that all himself. And without me knowing it, he scheduled a bunch of people to talk to me. In fact, right now, we're driving to meet the guys he used to work with. And, and there'll be young and old and in between and give you a good uh, round picture of, of uh, what's going on. We're driving out now to John McNally's ranch, I guess, and a train stacked with coal comes into view. That's not a weird sight, but Bill points it out. As we get up here, you're going to see about, I'm going to say close to 50 engines that they've retired because they're not hauling that much coal anymore. Eventually, we take a long, winding driveway as a single-story house comes into view with green ranch land surrounding it in all directions. A stocky older man steps out of a metal shed wearing grease-stained overalls. That's John McNally. His wife, Ruth, walks out from the house. She has an easy smile and short brown hair, wearing a button-down shirt with antelope on it. Ruth McNally. Nice to meet you, Cooper. How many years do you work at the... Call my John 30. 27 to the day. 27, 27 to, the day. to the day. Yes, sir. I hired on on the June, uh, 2nd of June. I retired on the 2nd of June. Bill and John worked on a crew together decades ago and are still buddies. I learned John stays busy now putting up hay and leasing out the grass for cattle. 
We all walk inside the McNally home as they ask me what I want to talk about. I'm laughing inside because everyone I've met so far today has just been so open to talking, I'm not even sure the McNallys knew I was coming. In the house, no lights are on, but the sun bleeds in. There's a pink Trump 2020 hat that sits on a coffee table. Ruth is in the kitchen. Have a seat. Okay. Would you like coffee or iced tea or anything? We sit down at a dining table as I ask John and Bill what the coal industry used to be like before it became the leading energy resource, a controversial political symbol, and driver of the Wyoming economy. (laughs) But I hired on in 82, and 82 was the good old days. Why's that? You couldn't do nothing wrong and make money. Coal was high, they were shipping it out of here faster than they could get it in the railroad car, and it just went downhill from there. But the coal industry was good to a lot of families. Oh boy. Because these guys were earning good money. Some of us wives had the luxury to stay home and raise our families because you didn't need two jobs to pay the bills. The year I bid out of the shop and went to the pit, I worked 87 days of overtime that year and I made 100000 plus. That was his goal. He wanted to make 100, and he did. <laughs> That's impressive. For an old redneck with nothing but a high school education, Hey, Mr. Zeke. This is Zeke Zabrowski. Uh No, Zeke Zabrowski. He worked out there till he retired. Their buddy Zeke walks in. His real name is Tim, but I learn everyone has a mining nickname. He wears a big black cowboy hat, aviator shades, and denim everything else. He's taller than John and Bill and very confident. Without missing a beat, he jumps in. I guess I got to start out saying, you know, a lot of people custom mine and and they got, they had some, some of that coming. But all in all, uh, and they take my career from the time I started to the time I ended. They cussed the mine, but they smiled all the way to the bank. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they took a guy that barely had a high school education and uh, paid executive wages for quite a number of years. Like Stacy. These guys are saying people didn't all work at a coal mine because of some devotion to the resource or company. People cussing the mines, as they say. It was just a really solid career that allowed them to have a good life. Young guys came in from all over the U.S. to work in this town and make the big bucks, including themselves. John's from Youngstown, Ohio. Zeke from South Dakota. Oh, it just boomed. I mean, <laughs> it was a dirty yeah. boom town Business, when he businesses came here were moving in 69. When I came here in 69, there was, what, three restaurants? Yeah. And about two paved streets in yeah. Gillette was yeah. all. I mean, it just, it just boomed the whole economy of the county. Uh, yeah, people coming in. When I came here, you couldn't find 69. You couldn't find a place to rent. Uh, what? Gillette barely existed in 1969? I had this idea in my head of old sepia-toned coal trains running through here with folks wearing top hats in a booming town. In fact, I'd seen pictures in a museum of old coal mines and trains. I figured Wyoming's coal history was much like Appalachia with its long history of mining, families that have passed down the tradition from one generation to the next. But I learned that was not the case here at all. 
I reached out to a historian named Phil Roberts to square my misconceptions. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three, four. Phil Roberts taught history at the University of Wyoming. He's well-versed in all things Western history. He brings me back to the 1960s, before coal took off here in Gillette. It's um, not much of a coal town because it's primarily a uh, railroad stop for cattle because the ranch country around there, uh, the ranchers needed a convenient shipping point. Hold on, I'm not totally crazy. Coal was a thing in Wyoming. I'd been to that museum. Robert says Rock Springs in southwest Wyoming was the Gillette of the 19th century with other hotspots around the state too. There's a total... A complete difference in the industry of the 19th century in Wyoming as compared to the coal industry later. Wyoming was an important coal-producing state for locomotive coal in particular in the 19th century. If you've been to Wyoming, you know there are a lot of ghost towns. It turns out many of those were once coal towns that just went away when the locomotive coal trend died. The period of the 1960s was a a period of uh, a coal depression, really, in Wyoming. The Union Pacific had declared war on coal, you might say, in the 50s. They had gotten rid of it because they went almost entirely to diesel. Coal did go away for a while. And without certain stars aligning, it might have stayed that way. Well, it was kind of accidental because what happened was the passage of the Clean Air Act. And in the passage of the Clean Air Act in the late 1960s, early 70s, the uh, Clean Air Act, in essence, mandated that uh, there could only be a certain level of particulate that could come from coal. And it wasn't seen at the time as being particularly fortuitous to Wyoming, but we were to find out a couple of years later when the uh, price of coal and the price of energy went sky high because of the Arab oil embargo, all of a sudden it made Wyoming not just competitive price-wise, but it made, uh, it made Wyoming positively boom because we had such a huge supply of coal and fortuitously had uh, railroads that were built in the spots where that coal could easily be extracted from. In other words, the landmark environmental legislation of our time, the Clean Air Act, is what sparked modern coal in Wyoming. And just like that, Gillette's uniquely rich supply of coal became internationally necessary, and the boom began. Yes, and the, the one part of the, of the puzzle that we didn't have were uh, communities that could house the miners and, uh, and provide the services, ongoing services, uh, to the people. And so the, uh, the townspeople who wanted to live there and stay and grow the place tried to think about ways that, that it could encourage uh, miners who were, had stable families, and not just miners, but people working in the community that would uh, bring with them their families and would put down their roots there and have a commitment in in seeing that the town was stable and would grow. And it happened. Energy companies and town leaders improved Gillette, paid for recreational areas, gyms, developed homes, 
restaurants built two high schools, and very importantly, this coal industry became the engine that drove the Wyoming economy. Today, it still funds most of the state's education system and countless local services. It still provides one of the largest sources of revenue for the state budget, and it's the fourth largest city in Wyoming. Admittedly, that's not saying much, but still, that's a lot of growth from having just a few streets a couple decades ago. When we return, Gillette residents remember the good old days and wonder if they'll ever come back. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. So back to Bill Forter and friends. Zeke says the town did completely change since he first arrived. Done a nice job. We got some awful nice facilities, great place to raise a family, good school system, good church system, good school system, pretty good all the way around. The guys say because the money was good, people enjoyed life. Well, wages were high and people, nobody done without toys. Oh shit. I mean, boats and pickups and motorcycles and campers and four-wheelers. I had noticed in Gillette, that nearly every house seemed to have a nice truck, quad, dune buggy, boat, or some other toy outside their house. I heard work hard, play hard quite a bit too, because they got good money and enjoyed it. I wondered what else makes this town what it is. Zeke says religion. Just drive up through town here. There's a church on every four blocks. There's a church in this town. And the West, like this, is never forgotten, you know, where we come from. You'll find a deeper religious conviction. They also talked a lot about family. Not just sticking together with your literal family, but the one built by coal. For example, these three guys who worked together several decades ago are still hanging out. The lifestyle that's grown alongside Gillette was coming into focus. One enabled by a solid paycheck that allowed you to spend time with your family, go to church, and enjoy toys out in the nearby mountains. And for the city government, it brought in a steady stream of revenue to help build this town. All this was possible because one random resource just did really, really well. And that's changing. There's a difference. I mean, it's, it's slowed down, way down. People aren't as optimistic as they used to be about the future. You cannot sell a product that they aren't using. And who can tell you the last time they built a coal-fired power plant? I can. It's right up here. It's the most premier one in the whole United States, but that's one. From there to here, we're, we're in trouble. Could you have imagined that when you started working in the industry? Not in a dream. You just, I mean, yeah. the good times rolled. It, like I said, that was the height of the good old days. Yeah. We lived the good old days. And now it's... Yeah. Now it's dwindling away. And, and we're fortunate enough that we, we come out of it with something good. You take some of these people now, that, that ain't going to happen. You notice something else when you talk to lifelong coal miners. Everyone has a strategy for keeping the town going. I've talked to many who say oil and gas will do it. Get the state to step up and make this place more attractive to other industries. 
figure out new uses for coal, like turning it into plastics. But the one I probably hear the most is exporting coal to Asia. Zeke, for one, says that could really help keep coal burning and his town alive. The key to the whole deal is getting some port authority, either on the West Coast, if we have to, or at the Gulf. But we got to be able to get this damn coal over where they're going to burn it. Because the United States is not going to burn it. We've brainwashed all these oh. kids and all this stuff to the point where we're not going to burn coal. I don't, unless it gets, I mean, they've made great, great progress in cleaning coal emissions up. But I don't believe you can convince the American people after being brainwashed for two generations on this global warming horse shit that you're just not going to be able to build a coal-fired power plant unless one other thing happens, and that is they run out of energy. The frustration here makes sense to me. Not his assessment of climate change, though I don't say that. I mean, coal runs this town and this state. Wyoming is reliant on it. If you went to public high school here, that's thanks to taxes from coal. And it's enabled Gillette to become bigger than a cow town. It makes sense that people aren't excited to see the resource that's enabled so much just go away. Well, it was nice to have met you. great to meet you. You bet. See ya. I leave the guys, but Bill still has a plan. We drive next to a diner that he frequents. He wants me to meet a young guy named Ty Cordingly. He was one of around 600 let go in the Black Jewel bankruptcy earlier this year. The diner is a big place, but only a few booths are filled up as we walk in. Ty and his dad Gary sit in an orange booth on the same side near the back. Gary is tall and rugged looking with a white goatee. He sports a denim jacket with sunglasses placed on top of his cap. His son Ty looks tired holding on to his coffee cup. As we start talking, it's clear Ty is frustrated with the state of the world and wants to vent a little bit. We start by talking about his life plan. So I had it in my mind that, hey, I, I would only be in the production for a little bit and then I'd be shifting over because I figured there would be a lot of years of uh, reclamation work. Because like my dad said, the mine had closed and the mine down there by Hanna, where we used to have a ranch down southern Wyoming, had closed. My son now is a fourth generation born Wyoming kid, so, but I'm really seriously considering now, I'm gonna have to probably leave the state. I mean, it's a, it's a reality of the economics. The thing is, Ty obviously doesn't wanna leave. He and his dad talk about how it's one of the finest places to raise a family. It's an independent place with hardworking people and a good community but he says it just doesn't feel good anymore. He talks about how older Gillette residents have sacrificed their lives and bodies to this work. But he feels sacrificed too, by local and state governments. Bill jumps in saying he feels the miners have been thrown under the bus as the state government keeps enforcing policies to keep companies around. But Ty says it's about daily decisions too, like funding a sports complex called the Field of Dreams, which has been bombarded by negative reaction. You know, it's just like we had plenty of recreational opportunities, like locally, like that field of dreams. A lot of money went into something that a few people wanted. That's a lot of money being spent that's not really looking towards the future. Tax revenues are declining. Like, I mean, at some point, the economic realities is going to force hard decisions. 
but like the, the younger people I've seen that the people that left the state that I worked with they didn't want to leave but there was no other choice so like my wife and I were talking it's just not me I mean you know like this isn't a story about one individual or one generation this is this is the whole community and the and the, the state has always just counted on us being the cash cow for the state of Wyoming and they didn't have to do any planning because the oil kept flowing and the trains kept rolling out with coal on it. In Wyoming, you often hear how much coal has helped this state, helped fund the university, keep the budget strong, allowed there to be no income tax, a gratitude that must be felt by all. But Ty is kind of saying, couldn't we have also used some of the extra money to plan for the future a little better? So communities that coal helped build don't just disappear? Because it's seeming kind of late now, as Ty feels people are still not facing reality. His dad, Gary, jumps in. All I ask Wyoming to do is, hey, kind of wake up here. The world's changing, all right? Coal is probably done in the form we know. Fine, I accept that. The world is about to change. Bring in some type of industry. Don't let this workforce disperse. They're here. They're young. Hello, industry. Come get these guys. Put them to work. Land is still relatively cheap in Wyoming. There's a lot of it. You can build businesses. You can build all kinds of stuff, you know. This. This clicked everything into place for me. It sounded like a well-said version of everything I'd been hearing all day. Let's figure this out. No one wants Gillette to disappear and for this amazing and young community to just go away. This community that, as Zeke, Bill, and John McNally said earlier, has allowed people the financial comfort to enjoy time with their families, church, toys, the outdoors. Ty adds, his friends are already leaving. While the state thinks about ways to get the revenue picture back on track, it's too late for people who need a job now. Meanwhile, Ty says coal miners are missing out on paychecks and benefits from companies that have recently gone bankrupt. Hearing all this, I'm left wondering what's next. I don't care who they who they talk to. If they you know, Trump, Trump, Trump's the most was the best chance they've ever had, and Trump hasn't been able to move that ball. So uh, everything, if, if one thing changes uh, in a big way, such as energy, then everything that feeds off of that, it's got to change the same. Otherwise, we're gonna we're gonna be sitting here looking at a, another ghost town like they have places like Jeffrey City. Places like that. There's ghost towns all over because the old railroad towns went through there, and at one time they had 100,000 people, and now there wasn't 10 people in this town. You know. There's just that, that's the scenario we're looking at right now, and people can't see that because they've never they've never been there. But it's coming. It's been a few months since I spoke with these guys, but Ty has since had to leave Gillette. Not confident about the future of the coal industry, he picked up his family and left now working for a gold mine in South Carolina. And remember Stacy Moeller at the beginning of the story? She's actually getting ready to leave Gillette right now with just her truck and her Airstream. Yeah, I already did. I, sold, I had an auction, sold 95% of everything I owned. Uh, so I have no, no house, no things. Everything, everything that I own will fit in here or in the back of my pickup, so... Unlike Ty, it's not because of a job. It's just after a lifetime, working outside, in the cold, often at night, 
Stacy is ready to try something different with her life. Well, I'm, I'll probably travel for a few years, just in the in the airstream and and see different places. I'm going to start in New Mexico. I'm going to volunteer at animal refuge and uh, study some birds and see some things I've never seen. So, I I, I just want to find the most beautiful, out of the way places in every state. Yeah, it was uh, it was a great career, and but I'm I'm glad to have finished it and have my time now. Cooper McKim reported that story. As Cooper was putting this story together, it really got me thinking. It's not just coal workers who were once respected but who've lost their status in recent years. Growing up, my dad was a derricant in the oil field. That means he stood at the very top of the rig and manhandled all the pipe as it came in and out of the ground. Really dangerous work. But he was respected for that work. He felt self-respect for that work. He remembers flying in an airplane and looking down at the lights of the city and thinking, I helped make that electricity possible. The parents of my classmates all did something similar. They were railroad workers or ranchers or loggers, forest rangers. Sure, there were environmental concerns behind some of those industries, but the workers did feel recognized for the value of their work. As technology sweeps us into the future, that peace, that respect for the laborer, shouldn't get lost in the shuffle. To see some of those sepia-toned archival photos of Wyoming coal miners, visit us at our website, themodernwest.org. While you're there, you'll also spot Stacy Muller in her Airstream, portraits of the retired miners out on the ranch, and more. Listen in next time when we follow one small-town man as he faces down his old age, alone and in a western state with few resources for long-term care. And I know like things like life alerts and they make people say, well, that's for old, old people. Well, but yeah. you need them. Well, 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 you're right on track with what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that isn't necessarily cool. Sure. <laughs> the Widower, next time on The Modern West. I'm Melody Edwards. Our theme music is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.